You're listening to audio from Century Baptist Church. To connect with us, visit centurybaptist.org or download the Century Baptist Church app. Good morning. My name is Charlie Young. I'm one of the elders here at Century. Um, Today we're reading from Matthew chapter 11. We'll be starting in verse 1. Uh, If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's page 816. Um, Matthew 11, verses 1 through 6. When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. We thank you that it is trustworthy and it is without error. This morning as we gather, pray that your Holy Spirit would guide Pastor Ethan and us as we study your word and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, worship team. My name is Ethan Johnson. I'm the executive pastor here. It's a good reminder for us to keep in prayer for Pastor Nather, our lead pastor. He's gone for a few more weeks, actually three more Sundays. So you get me for three Sundays, and then he's back in December for the Christmas series. We got the snow for him. We got everything ready for him. He's going to come back and be ready to roll. It's going to be very exciting. We're going to continue in the book of Matthew uh, in our series called King Jesus. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about expectations. Have you ever received a gift? That's a great gift, but it wasn't what you were expecting. Kids are the best of this because they don't have, they, they can't hide it. They've been asking for something for months and they think that's what's in the package. They rip off the paper and it's something different. And you got them something great, like better than what they asked for, but it's not what they thought. And what is this thing? And they discard it. It didn't match up with their expectations. Today we're going to talk about expectations and the power of expectations and how to respond to them. A little bit of a context check. Where are we in the book of Matthew? We started off actually last Christmas in the December. We started the book of Matthew at the beginning with the Christmas story. Since then, Matthew worked through some introductory things about Jesus's early life. Then in chapters 5 through 7, we spent time in the Sermon on the Mount, focusing on his teaching. Then in chapters 8 and 9, we focused on some of his miracles, some of the signs and wonders that he performed, and talked about the context of those. We just finished chapter 10, which was about his expanding ministry as he's training up and sending out his disciples. And now we enter a few chapters that are going to talk a little bit about increasing opposition to Jesus in his teaching. And it starts with a discussion about John the Baptist, which we'll be looking at mostly in chapter 11. So here we are picking up chapter 11. It says that Jesus finished instructing his 12, meaning he's sending them out on the mission he has for them, but he is continuing on his mission. And we know that mission, Matthew says, is to teach and preach in their cities. Now Matthew, a couple times, has taken a moment to summarize and remind us of Jesus' teaching, his primary mission. Chapter 4, chapter 9, Matthew says he went to the synagogues and was teaching in the synagogues. Then he says he was preaching the good news to the poor and healing all those who were in need. Now here, Matthew says Jesus' mission was teaching and preaching, which reminds us that is the point. That's the main point. He was bringing a kingdom. He was bringing a message. He was bringing the gospel. How does the teaching and the preaching 
work with the healing. We talked in chapter 9 about how the healing worked to, to support the others. It gave uh, Jesus authenticity. It validated his, uh, his divinity so that he had authority when he preached that that was how people received him with authority. And so the healings were not the main point. We talked about this a few months ago. Because, we know this because all of the things that Jesus did, everyone he healed, it was a temporary healing. He would cause the blind to see, but they would eventually get older and lose their eyesight. Even people he raised from the dead, he, rose, he raised them from the dead, but they were going to die again. The miracles were all temporary because they were pointing to what was permanent. The permanent miracle was eternal life. That was as a result of the gospel. So the miracle served the other two in pointing to the main, this is Jesus' main mission, mission and main ministry, the teaching and the preaching of the gospel. So John, who's in prison, now we know he's in prison from chapter 4. It says John was put in prison. And in a couple chapters, chapter 14, we're going to hear a lot about what happened to John at that time and, and eventually the end of his life. But for now, he's stuck in prison. He has disciples. There's people that were following John and they still follow him. And they still probably were visiting the prison, giving him food, taking care of him. And so John says to them, could you please go talk to Jesus and ask him this question? Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now what John does here is he asks for confirmation. He wasn't asking this out of weakness. We know he's not weak because just look, next week actually we'll talk about what Jesus said about John. It is not weak. And it's not out of a, a, a questioning of his faith or a confusion of his faith. It's a confused expectation. John was expecting Jesus to come and bless those who were faithful and those who were oppressed, but also to punish his enemies. Both those things. Because, well, what did John say about, John the Baptist said about Jesus in Matthew 3? He said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he, Jesus, who is coming after me, is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is God's judgment. This is what John was expecting. He was hoping for more winnowing fork and fire and not just teaching and healing and being nice to people. He was, well, John knew the Old Testament. He, he knew what Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah, the Christ. And John's in, in, in Isaiah 61, the Messiah would come, preach good news to the poor. Yes. Bind the brokenhearted. Absolutely. Proclaim liberty to the captives. Yes. The opening of the prison to those who are bound. The year of the Lord's favor and the day of judgment, the day of vengeance of our God. So John is at the, you know, at the bars talking to his guys saying, hey guys, go ask Jesus if he remembers the part about the breaking of the prison doors because that would be really helpful right now. Essentially, he was kind of saying, ask Jesus, if you are you and I'm me, I mean, meaning if you're the Messiah and I'm the one coming before you, how come I'm stuck in here and you're out here walking around healing people and just teaching? Where's the fire? Where's the judgment? So his faith wasn't wavering. It's just that the expectations were different. He didn't expect Jesus to be doing what he was doing. But he asked for clarification and he went straight to the source, which is important. So Jesus receives these men who came from John 
And he says, go and tell John what you hear and see. And this is very gracious of Jesus. He didn't just say, guys, come on. Have you not been paying attention? Duh. Don't you know what's going on? Jesus took time. And a lot of commentators think not just to tell them, but he actually, while they were there, showed them and healed people in their midst so that they would be eyewitnesses of what was happening to assure John, don't worry, this is, this is all happening the way it's supposed to happen. Then Jesus used language straight from Isaiah. All throughout the book of Isaiah, it's full of messianic promises. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, poor have the good news preached to them. All of it's there. This would have been very comforting and reassuring to John and to us. Jesus is saying, I'm the one. I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. All the things that they said were going to happen are happening. It's me. Now, the interesting thing is, if you look up those passages in Isaiah that talk about the great things the Messiah would do, all those passages also talk about the judgment of God and his wrath poured out against those who reject him and who are enemies of God. So John wasn't wrong because he saw Jesus doing the loving part but not the judging part. His analysis wasn't wrong. His timing was wrong because the judgment wasn't coming, at least not yet. And so this has to remind us of how God revealed himself to the prophets. I heard this explained one time and it's very helpful for me. So think of yourself on a mountain peak, on a range of mountains. You're on a mountain peak and you're looking at mountains. You see the peak you're on, you see the next one, the next one, and the next one. In the Old Testament, God would show his prophets the future. He would tell them about individuals or countries or nations or places or events. And they would all be these peaks. But he wouldn't necessarily show them the valley in between, how far in between these peaks they were. You could just see the mountain peaks. And so sometimes you would see two things, like, for instance, he's going to come and heal the, heal the sick and uh, preach the poor and bring his judgment. And they might interpret that as being right next to each other, but it could be, there could be a space in which many things could happen. So John wasn't wrong in his analysis. The prophecies were true. Jesus would eventually, will eventually bring judgment on those who reject God and who don't believe in him. But for now, his mission was different. And Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Basically, this is, a, this is a beatitude. He's giving a blessing. He's just like at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. He's saying, blessed are those who are not offended. What does he mean by offended? Basically, just because things aren't going your way doesn't mean they aren't going God's way. Being offended means to fall away, to stumble, to uh, reject, to walk away. Many people who heard Jesus walked away. We know that. The Bible says it. He would gather a crowd, then he would teach something hard, and people would go. And sometimes a lot of people would go, and he'd turn to his disciples and say, are you going to go too? And they're like, no, man, we're with you. We're with you. You have the words of life. But people would hear him, the gospel, the truth from God, from Jesus' very own mouth, and they would walk away. They were offended. And they let their offense lead to leaving. It's more than just seeing Jesus do amazing things or hearing him preach or being in the crowd or even someone who was healed by Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that they were actually saved by Jesus if they didn't put their faith in him. 
So Jesus is saying, keep your faith and your expectations in line with me, who I actually am and what I'm actually doing. And this is a challenge to us today. It's a very, very straightforward challenge. We need to examine our presuppositions and our expectations about Jesus and keep them in line with what he actually is doing and what he actually said he will do. How do we do this? We do this by obeying his teaching, his commands, his instructions, his warnings. These are the means by which God keeps us from stumbling. In John 16, Jesus said to his disciples, He's teaching them all this stuff. And he says, I've, I've told you all these things to keep you from falling away, to keep you from stumbling or being offended. And if you follow me, if you keep my commandments, that will keep you. That's the means by which God keeps us from falling. That's how we can rest assured. When Jesus commands, the Spirit enables, we obey and we remain in him and don't stumble. That's the promise of the end of Jude, that wonderful doxology that we love. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, keep you from falling away, keep you from being offended, he is able to and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. God's promise is that he will keep us and he will keep us in our faith. That's a blessing for those who believe in him. As we read through this, especially as we read through these teachings, it's important just to step back and think, okay, remember the Bible, Bible verse, a Bible passage has one meaning. It could have a thousand applications as long as they're faithful to the meaning of the text. And so we need to think about how, okay, how can I take this, what John's going through, and actually internalize it? What can I walk away with? So number one, I would say, we need to use God's word to discern God's will. Expectations about God can be dangerous if they're not in line with what the Bible says. John's expe- John the Baptist's expectations were off, but he sought the truth and he was willing to abide by it. He was willing to follow it, whatever Jesus said. And we've got to remember, just because things aren't going our way doesn't mean they aren't going God's way. We need to use God's word to discern his will, which means following Jesus is bringing our, our lives in line with him as the way, truth, and the life. And when we do that, this changes our expectations, it changes our prayers, our desires, our values, our affections, and our decisions. And so I was thinking about this and asking the question, how how do I discern? How can I discern God's will when I make decisions? We all make decisions, and if you're following Jesus, you want to make decisions that honor God, that follow his will. We get that question a lot as pastors. How do I know if I'm in God's will or not? How do I know if this decision is God's will? As I've got that question over the years, I've kind of assembled a little bit of a grid, a little bit of a framework on how to think through how to make those decisions and how to make them in a biblical and godly way. So it's not magic. It's not anything that's completely revolutionary. It's four words that I use. They all start with W. I couldn't make a, like, spell a word to make, help you remember it, but they all start with W. Hopefully that helps some. But this is a, a way that I would counsel people on how to make decisions in line with God's will. So the first word is word. What does the Bible say? That is the first question we must always ask when making decisions and wanting to be in God's will. 1 John 5, 3 says, For this is love, 
that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So what does the Bible say? Is there something in Scripture that commands me or forbids me from doing this? Meaning, does it say I must or does it tell me that I must not? That's where you start. Are there specific commands or is there anything forbidden in Scripture? The next layer in that is, when you ask the Bible, is what are the biblical principles that govern, that might govern this decision? There may not be an explicit Bible verse that you can pull out that says, uh, thou shalt not buy a Ford and buy a Chevy instead. The Bible doesn't talk about what truck to buy. It's not comprehensive in that, but there are lots of principles in Scripture that do inform our decision about priorities and money and stewardship and integrity and relationships. So what does the Bible say specifically? Does it say specifically that I must or must not? And what are the biblical principles that underline anything? That's where we have to start. If you want to know what God's will is, it starts with what the Bible says. The second question to ask is the word walk. How does this, whatever you're deciding, affect my walk with Jesus? There's this tremendous prayer in Colossians chapter 1. And Paul is telling the Colossians what he is praying for them. And he says, I'm praying that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So he wants them to know God's will and have the understanding, the discernment to be able to do it. But then he says, why? Verse 10 of Colossians 1. So as to, so you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. He wants them to not just know what God's will is, but to have the wisdom to do it. So they walk in a way that pleases him. They bear fruit for him, and they live their lives honoring him. That's the purpose. So the next question has to be, how does this affect my walk with Jesus? How does it affect my discipleship? Meaning, being a disciple and making disciples, following Jesus and helping other people follow Jesus. How will this affect that? How will this help me fulfill my mission? Will making this decision advance the mission God has for me? Now, believe it or not, and if you didn't realize this, if you are a Christian, if God has saved you, he didn't just save you for fun. He saved you with a purpose. You have a mission, and every one of our missions might be different. But you have one. Does this decision actually advance that mission or not? If it doesn't, you probably shouldn't do it. That's probably not God's will. The other layer is this. Um, how will this de decision, will this decision draw me closer to Jesus or farther away? Sometimes we ask for things that if God actually gave them to us, it would, we would actually spend less time with him and pay less attention to him. That's like asking God to give us an idol. God, would you please give me an idol that I can worship more than you? Do you think he's going to answer that one? No. I use three words when I talk about worship, and the words are attention, affection, and adoration. What we give our attention to, meaning what we have in front of us all the time, what you put in front of us, we, we decide to put things in front of us. What we give our attention to will affect our affections, meaning the more we have something in front of us, the more we're going to love it, the more we're going to 
have strong affections for it. And the more our affections grow, that's going to lead to adoration, worship. Worship means giving worth to something. So if our attention is focused on something and our affections are drawn to it, we're going to end up worshiping it. God is not going to give us something or lead us in his will towards something that draws us away from him. Our attention and affection and adoration, our primary attention, affection, and adoration should be to him. If you ask this question, will this draw me closer to Jesus or farther away, God's will is always, no matter what, to draw us closer to him. Anything that draws us away is not what he desires for us. So we ask what the Bible says first. We ask how this will affect my walk with Jesus. Next, the word is wisdom. Is it wise or foolish? Ephesians 5 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And James 1.5, if you don't have wisdom, if you lack it, ask God and he will give it to you. This is seeking wise, godly counsel. Someone who walks with Jesus, who has a biblical worldview, sees things through the lens of the Bible, and you ask them, is this a good idea or not? Is this wise or foolish? Based on how you know me, do you feel like this decision is good for me and my family? It's important that you ask someone who, who has the same world, who sings things the same way through the Bible. I mean, we can learn stuff from customer reviews online. I mean, you can read them. You can learn some things, although they're all over the map. Someone will say, this is the best product ever. I use it every day. I couldn't live without it. And another person says, I opened it up and it burst into fire the first time I used it and I sent it back. I, it's, it's hard to tell from reviews if a product is really good. You can learn some things. The real beneficial, beneficial interaction is someone who loves Jesus and who knows you. So you ask that question, is it wise or foolish? Is this a good idea or not? The fourth word is want. And you ask, what do I want? There's a reason this one is at the end. You don't start with this one. We need to let our desires and our affections be governed by God's word, by our walk with Jesus, and by the wisdom he gives us and other people. God knows that desires are powerful and there is competing desires all around us all the time. There's the desires of the world and the desires of the word. I got to make sure I say that. The world and the word. And the desires of the world are powerful. John talks about this in 1 John 2, starting in 15. <clears throat> he says, do not love the world or the things of the world. Okay, this is the desires of the world he's talking about. There's things that the world is trying to draw you in to desire it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father but from the world. And in verse 17 he says, And the world is passing away with all its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So not only are the desires of the world powerful, they're going to pass away. They're going to lead to destruction. They're going to be judged. But the desires and affections of the will of God 
lasts forever. If you abide in Him, they will abide in you. He will give you and change your desires. The more and more you're conformed to be like Jesus, your desires and affections will also be conformed to be more and more like what He wants, the things that He wants, the way that He sees things. And so we can ask, after you work through, what does the Bible say? How does this affect my walk with Jesus? Is it wise or unwise? God may just be giving you a choice. There may be two good options there, and you may get to choose. If you have a decision to make about a job and you've got to move, and there's two choices, you might just choose to move somewhere that's warmer. I mean, that's why we live here, right? Because North Dakota is way warmer than Antarctica. Most of the time, you, you might be choosing a college and you have walked through the process and you have two good choices and you might just say, well, those school colors don't look great on me, so I think I'm going to go with this one. It might just be a choice. God does give us choices if our desires, if our affections are shaped by his word. Then he'll lead us and he'll allow us to do that. Applying these principles in general, again, this is not a magic formula, but in general, it trains us to think about things the way God thinks about things. And it helps us to make wise and godly decisions in any, every area of life based on his will. Now, this is not foolproof, okay? For instance, if you go home this afternoon and sit down on your couch and think, well, let's see. Nothing in the Bible says I can't buy an 85-inch QLED LCD screen TV. So that's good. The Bible says I, doesn't say I can't. How will a new TV help my discipleship? I would be able to see church a lot better from my couch <laughs> if I had a bigger TV. Is it wise? Well, the commercial said they're great TVs and they're on sale, so that's obviously wise. Do I want it? Yes. Honey, I'm going to buy a new TV. Pastor Ethan said I could. It's God's will. Please don't do that. That's not how this works. God has not set us up so that we know his will by making a phone call or sending him an email and he sends us back and says, this is what you need to do. He set it up with his word so that we have the principles and the instructions to make godly wise decisions. And he says, seek wisdom from him and from those around you. A few thoughts about making decisions. You can make a good decision, the right decision, but it doesn't necessarily mean that things will go smoothly. God never promises that following his will is going to be easy or smooth or comfortable necessarily, but it's always good. So you might make a biblical, wise, God-honoring decision that actually leads into trial and difficulty. But where God's will is, God's grace is. Always. And that's a promise he never breaks. God's way is always the best way. And we know God's way when we use God's word to discern God's will. So the second thing I was thinking about is we need to use God's word to examine our faith. It's okay to ask if you're okay with the answer. I've had musicians over the years who will give me suggestions, recommendations. And most of the time, they're very good, good ones, and sometimes we're, that's just not where we're going as a, as a team, as a group. 
And they'll say, is it okay if I make these suggestions? And I, and I always say, I am totally okay with you making suggestions if you're totally okay with me saying no. And if we understand, then fire away. Give me all your suggestions. It's okay to ask if you're okay with the answer. So John the Baptist had a question. And he went to the source. And he was willing to accept whatever the answer it was that Jesus gave him. He wanted to respond. He wanted to get it right. Some people read this passage and they ask, did John doubt? Was he doubting Jesus? Was he doubting if this was really what God was doing? And was he doubting his faith? And what about me? What, what about when I have doubts about my faith or questions? I, I think we need to clarify a little bit about what that means for our sake. Doubt, officially, the definition mostly means uncertainty. But people use it to have a little bit more freight sometimes. Let me just clarify. There's a difference between questioning and stumbling. There's a difference between being confused or being offended. There's a difference between learning and rejecting. If you are asking questions because you're confused and you want to learn, that means you're growing. If you're making arguments because you're offended and angry, then chances are you're moving toward rejecting, being offended. If you come to the Bible to learn and grow and submit to it, that means you're born again. That's what Jesus says, that you're born again. You have the spirit in you that's leading you to the truth, aligning your life with God's will. If you come to the Bible to argue and object and reject it, then you might not be born again. I was trying to think of a metaphor for this. It's kind of like being born and being born again. So when you're born for the first time, like way back when you were born, everything is new. Everything changes and you have no idea what's going on. A baby who just comes out into the world has no clue what's happening. I'm hungry. Ah, they cry. But as they grow, they start to learn how things work. And when they get old enough to talk, what do they say? Why? Why? Why does this work? Why is that? Why do you do this? They ask questions and spend the rest of their life learning what it means to be human. When you're born again, it's the exact same thing because something changed. It's brand new. You're seeing things, you're feeling things differently now for the first time and you have no idea what happened. Someone who's a brand new Christian may not have any idea what just happened. I put my faith in Jesus and boom, okay, what's happening? And you might ask your questions. Why is this happening? What's going on here? And you seek out the truth and you spend the rest of your life learning what it means to follow Jesus. That's growing. It's a process, growing your faith. In Mark chapter 9, there's a man who came to Jesus and he brought his son to be healed. And he says, can you heal him? And Jesus says, yes, I can if you believe. And so this guy is like, okay, I am not sure what that means. I mean, I know you're, that you've done, I've seen you do miracles. I've heard that you do great things. I know you can do this, otherwise I wouldn't ask, but I don't understand. So he literally says, I believe, help my unbelief. Meaning, I, I know you can help me, but I don't know all there is to know about it. Would you show me? That's not doubting, that's growing. That's asking God to deepen his faith and his understanding. He says, I, I believe a little, I want to believe a lot. Help me. We're supposed to grow in our faith. We're supposed to examine our faith. Come to Bible with our questions. In 2 Corinthians 3, 13, 5, Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves or do you not realize 
this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So he's saying ask those questions. Test yourself. But not just, don't just ask anybody. Go to the Word. Ask the Bible. What does this mean? Is this right? What do I believe about this? What should I believe about that? Am I missing something? What does God say? That's why we do every Sunday. We go, what does the Bible say? What does it mean? And what are we going to do about it? We should be coming to the Bible and asking all of our questions, examining our hearts against what the Bible says, and coming to God as the final authority to see things the way that he sees them. If that's what you mean when you say, I have doubts about my faith, then dig in. Ask all the questions. And God will honor your desire to grow. That's not doubting. That's growing. That's what he wants us to do. Come to his word and ask him and seek him. What about people who have doubts and they leave? They walk away from the faith. They reject the church, reject Jesus. They they don't come to the Bible as the authority or trusting God. They're not willing to do what it says. They basically come with skepticism, looking to argue, disprove, and not willing to submit. That person is likely not actually born again or not born again yet, and perhaps never were. Um, This is hard because some people have a very convincing Christian life. They come to church faithfully. They take notes dutifully on the sermons. They go to Bible studies. They perhaps even are in leadership, or maybe even a pastor, maybe a worship leader, maybe someone who writes amazing songs for the church to sing. And at one point, they just say, you know what? Never mind. I'm out. I don't believe in that stuff anymore. What can you do about that? That's hard. The Bible has examples of people who appear to throw it all away. Judas is one. Judas is the obvious one. Judas Iscariot. Who is more in the inner circle than Judas? He saw more things and heard more things than almost any human that ever existed. And yet, in the end, he took a bribe, betrayed Jesus, and left it. Jesus said in Matthew 7, there will be lots of people who come and say, Jesus, hey, remember me? And Jesus says, no. And they're like, well, but we did We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did many mighty works in your name. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Just because you came to church and heard the sermons and were part of the ministry doesn't mean you actually trusted me and believed in me. You were here, but you weren't in because you didn't have faith. You weren't born again. John talks about this in the first John 2. He was, you could just feel John's heartache because there were people in the church And in the early church, you knew who was in the church and who wasn't because there was so much persecution. And some people in the church believed false teaching and left. And John says, they went out from us, meaning they left, but they were not of us. Meaning they left us, we thought they were in, but they were not actually born again. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. And he's just lamenting. There were people we thought, we sat side by side and fought with and they left because they weren't actually one of God's children. They weren't actually born again and they proved it by their leaving. Now don't let this, don't, don't, don't 
respond in fear to this. This is sobering indeed. But the Bible teaches us that once you're born again, you can't become unborn again. That's the nature of being born again. 2 Corinthians 5 says when you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. That is not a small deal. That's not just an improvement. God just doesn't make you nicer. He says you're a new creation. There's something brand new about you that he miraculously has done. That is not insignificant. That is massively important. You're a new creation. First Peter 1, Peter is just worshiping. You can just feel him just praising God. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And look at what he says. He, God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In the, the same power and degree that Jesus' resurrection is, is the life you have. Because Jesus rose again, you have life. And you have life because he has life. But that's not all. He says, you also have an inheritance. Meaning it's not just now you have life, you have life forever. And that inheritance, that gift, that eternal life is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. That sounds pretty good. But there's more. Not just as he promised that you'll get this inheritance, he's saying it is kept in heaven for you. This, your salvation is not a card you get to put in your pocket and then at some point you put it through the laundry or you just toss it out because you don't want it anymore. It's actually being kept for you in heaven. That's how secure your faith and your salvation is when you have been born again. And not even just that. There's another layer. He says, you, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only is your salvation being kept in heaven, God himself, by his power, is guarding it for you. Does this sound like something that you can just decide one day to throw away? No. When you are born again, you are born again, period. Someone's doubt or questioning or apparent reversal is not powerful enough to undo this miraculous work of God. So we should be asking then, okay, that sounds really good. How do I know? 1 John 5, 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. How can you know? Well, you know because if you're born again, you believe in Jesus now, today. If you're born again, you believe in Jesus today. And if you are born again, God will keep your faith so that, so that you believe in Jesus tomorrow and the next day and the next day until you see him. That's how you know. He's told us these things so we can have confidence. And for those who heartbreakingly walk away from the faith because either they never were born again in the first place or they were born again but are making really bad choices, we pray for them and we share the gospel with them because either way, they need to repent and turn back to Jesus. 
And that's how we know that God is at work. God is at work here and around the world. He, it may not always be like we expect or when we expect, but it's always good. We must use God's word to discern God's will, use his word to examine our faith and grow. Because where God's will is, his grace is. And his way is always the best way. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, Lord, it is so good. You are so good. I just share that prayer. We believe. Help our unbelief. We, this morning, we, we're here because we want to know you and want to believe. But it, we, admittedly, we know our faith can be small sometimes. Help it to grow. We want to walk in the full assurance of faith that the Bible shows us. You can know that you're the child of you, Jesus. Help our unbelief. Help us as we walk with you to develop a pattern to discern your will in everyday life according to your word and to examine our hearts thoughtfully, carefully, with the lens of God's word so that we can know, so that we can know the one that we believe in, the one that we put our lives in the hands of. Everything is at stake. We want to trust you and follow you. Help us to know your will, help us know your word, and help us to follow you, follow you faithfully, knowing that your way is the best way, no matter what. We thank you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand?